Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. This is the word of God. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Father, we come before your word this morning. And we ask that you would use it in our lives to encourage us, to change us, to mold us, to shape us according to your will. For your glory and for our joy. Help us to have courage to deny ourselves and to pick up our crosses and follow after you. Help us to be doers of your words, not just hearers. God who sits above the earth and is capable of giving us all that we ask or imagine, it's you that we ask for these things now. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. So wonderful to be here. was downstairs signing my kids into Sunday school in the hustle and bustle. If you feel warm in here, I'm just telling you those kids' body temperature in that small room, just be thankful you're not helping down there today. Well, today we've come to the beginning of the end. We've come to the end of the core section of the book of Hebrews. The explanation by the preacher and author of Hebrews of Jesus, our high priest. And we're beginning the end of the book of Hebrews, which is largely exhortative. Exhortative or exhortation means to give strong encouragement. It's an encouragement for how to live in light of the knowledge of Jesus, our high priest. The remainder of the book of Hebrews is largely the so what of the sermon that this preacher has given so far. Now, how does Jesus being the high priest mean that they should live in the first century? We are asking today, how does Jesus being the high priest mean that we should live now? Now, you may have heard it said that in studying the Bible, you should always ask, so what? Why does this text matter? What should it change about my life? And how should it change my thoughts and my actions? 
Well, after the preacher has given us this grand exposition and explanation of our high priest, Jesus, we've come to the place where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. How shall we then live in light of this rich, deep, life-altering priest and Savior? You'll notice the title of today's sermon is, How Shall We Then Live? I've copied the title of a book by the venerable Francis Schaeffer, written in 1976. Schaeffer says this in the opening to his book. People are unique in the inner life of the mind. What they are in their thought world determines how they act. This is true of their value systems, and it's true of their creativity. It's true of their corporate actions, such as political decisions. It's true of their personal lives. The results of their thought world flow through their fingers and from their tongues in the external world. This is true of Michelangelo's chisel, and it is true of a dictator's sword. And this is also true of you. Whether you're a Christian or not, you live out of your belief. Belief leads to action. Action comes from belief. So what? Does belief in Jesus as high priest cause an action in those who profess faith in him? That's the question that we're going to work through in today's message. You'll see the points in your outline. Number one is our confidence. Number two, our calling with subpoints of draw near, hold fast, and stir one another up. Finally, number three, our custom. We'll unpack these straightforward imperatives from God's word for our lives. The work is ours to do now to understand how these things apply to our lives. Holy Spirit, help us. Now, before we begin our outline, we need to understand the tension that's driving the preacher in this sermon to the Hebrews so that we'll understand his zeal as, he, uh, as we move through these exhortations. And really, these exhortations go from today through the rest of the book of Hebrews. Now, throughout Hebrews, we see warning after warning about the danger of falling away from the confession of our hope. The preacher understands this precarious journey that we're on as we await the second coming of our Lord Jesus. The preacher is thinking about eternity about the eternal destiny of souls of eternal image bearers. Image bearers like you and like me. And like our sons and daughters. Like our neighbors and our co-workers. This isn't some after-school game of basketball or winning a day at the beach. We're talking about eternity. And the preacher knows that we'll have trouble. He knows how precarious this journey is as we await Christ's return. Listen to these excerpts from some of the warning passages in Hebrews. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 3. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you, be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, 
leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And the verses right after this passage that we'll hear next week. Chapter 10, verses 26 and 27. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful, and I add, a dreadful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. The preacher is highlighting the challenge and necessity of persevering in faith. Now for us today, the same as it was for this Hebrew audience, it's not a question of if we will have trouble and temptation to desert Christ. It's a question of what we will do when we face those temptations. So when our preacher opens our text for this morning with a therefore, he's moving from the longest section about what we believe in Hebrews, a grand exposition of our great high priest, to a this is how we live because of what we believe section. How shall we then live in light of our great high priest? Light of the fact that we will face temptation and turmoil in light of how hard it is to persevere. Well, first, the preacher speaks again in a short summary of where our confidence to persevere comes from. Verses 19 through 21. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, being confident in our perseverance comes from our great high priest. Through Christ's work, Christians have two great privileges. Number one, we have access to God. We can enter the holy place because of Jesus' blood. It made us right with God. Now, if you're just joining us this week, or you're catching this online and you've missed the previous few weeks, please finish the sermon out and then go back and listen to all the sermons about our great high priest that we've had over the last weeks and months. That started in 5.1, chapter 5, verse 1, and it went through verse 18 of our current chapter. It was through Jesus' body broken and his blood shed for us that we have access to God. His body here is compared to a veil in the temple that limited access to the Holy of Holies where God's presence resided with the nation of Israel. And now <laughs> we have access to the throne room of God where our high priest is currently seated. This is our confidence. It's not in our works and it's not in our lack of good works. Our confidence is Jesus and what he secured for us. The God of the heavens and of the earth. The God who created galaxies and oceans teeming with life. The God who created you and me. We have access to him. 
if this isn't staggering to you, to have access to this God, you might not have the right view of God. Or you're standing before him without Christ. In our own merit, we stood condemned to death. Eternal death. Where we'd continue to exist with awareness of being separated from everything that's good. Because of his great love, God sent his son to pay the penalty to assuage the wrath of God so that we could enter the throne room with confidence, brothers and sisters. Because of our high priest, we can boldly approach the throne of grace to find help and receive mercy in a time of need. And access to God is our first privilege, and it's where our confidence comes from. Our second privilege is that we have a great high priest. Verse 21 again, and, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, and we have a great high priest who has handled the sacrifice to make us right with God, a high priest who was himself the sacrifice, and now he sits with God in heaven and he's seated with, at the right hand of God, a position of honor and power and title. And he's seated his work, of making a, uh, his work of making a way for us to be with God is finished. He has no need to continue offering sacrifices. Jesus died as a sacrifice, rose from the dead, pulled up a chair, and now he's seated. Romans 8.34 adds this. Christ Jesus, the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Right now, in this moment, Jesus sits at the right hand of God, interceding for you and me. Oh, brothers and sisters, we have confidence because our high priest's work is sufficient. This great verse from Hebrews 6.19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Incredible. Incredible. If you don't have this confidence, you can. If you have conviction of your sin against God, and you realize that you offer nothing that will make you right with him, and you realize you need a mediator. You can have this confidence by placing your faith and trust in Jesus. Acknowledging that he paid the debt that you couldn't. And this confidence is yours. Because of Christ, through faith, you can be made right with God. Place your faith in Jesus today. Now, if you have placed your faith in, in Jesus, how shall we then live confidently in Christ? Confidently in his grace and mercy and forgiveness of our sins. Confidently that his sacrifice was superfluously adequate to restore us to God. 
the accuser of the brethren, that's Satan, he wants to steal our confidence by causing us to doubt the efficacy and effectiveness of our high priest's work. Don't listen to it. Walk in your calling. Our calling is how we live out what we're confident in. Our high priest and his work for us is our confidence. So what then is our call? Another way to say it, a lot of high schoolers in here, what's our call of duty? Verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Part one of our call is draw near. We live confidently in our high priest by drawing near to him, by approaching him, by lingering with him, by going to him. And draw near to Jesus in his throne room with God our Father. This is amazing. Like the Jews wouldn't even speak the name of God. And the preacher in Hebrews is telling them to approach the throne room where he's seated with confidence. Listen to these words from chapter 4 where this same word for draw near is used. Let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. It is in drawing near with confidence that we will persevere in faith. And I think it's helpful to think of drawing near as worship. And I think thinking through worship for a minute might help us understand this. Worship is what we're doing right now. We worship when we set ourselves down under God's word, the Bible. And we let it pour over our hearts and minds with the gathered people of God. Our adoration and our focus and our ascription of worth is to God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ as we gather to know him more through the study and proclamation of his truth. His word is alive and active from earlier in Hebrews. We learned that it discerns the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And we must live lives that are saturated by his word. And in doing this, we're drawing near to him. And it is worship when we do the same in our devotion to his word throughout our weeks when we're by ourselves in the quiet moment of the day. Now this is how we approach him in the throne room, by coming to him in spirit and truth. Another means of corporate worship is when we gather our hearts and minds and voices and lift up his name in songs of praise and adoration. Now worship is also when we offer all of our lives, each aspect of it, as living sacrifices to him who is worthy of all of our devotion. Romans 12, 1 and 2 you may be familiar with. Paul urges the Romans to offer their bodies as a spiritual act of worship. All of the Christian's life is God's. This is how we draw near with assurance of faith, by showing that we really do ascribe worth and dignity and honor to his name. And we approach him regularly with faith in him that he has delivered us 
and will bring us home to heaven with him one day. Verse 22, again, says to draw near with a pure heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, Christians have been given a new heart that was sprinkled clean from an evil conscience by the blood of Jesus. We can come into the throne room confidently with a clear conscience, not a doubting one, because we have faith in the work of the high priest. And we continually need to draw near to him, to approach him with this in mind in our weakest and most vulnerable moments. Because the struggle that we continue to experience is real. And that's why the preacher is reminding us in this text to dwell on these things in our drawing near. And we also live confidently in our high priest by holding fast the confession of our hope. Verse 23 continues. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now, this is the third time in Hebrews that believers are told to hold fast to what they believe. Homologia is the, is the Greek word. Its connotation is public, doctrinal, and confessional. We hold fast to our belief that Jesus is our great high priest. That's our confession. <laughs> That's our hope. And we're not ashamed of it. Now, this is constantly under attack. I think to, to combat that, we need, to, we need to know what we believe, which is also to say what the Bible teaches us. And we need to know why we believe it. Sometimes, maybe pessimistically, oftentimes, Christians are soft intellectually. And they struggle to engage the world with the good news about our high priest because they have no idea why they believe it. Investigate. Study, learn, grow. This will help you hold fast. If your faith and belief isn't tested, your roots are probably shallow. But when you dig into what you believe and why you believe it, you will be like a tree planted by a living stream whose roots go deep and nourish even when in a dry and weary place. Know what you believe and why you believe it. And think about it often. Dwell on it. Hold fast to it. Now what you're thinking about is a big deal. Again, listen to Schaefer. As a man thinketh, so he is. The inner thought life determines the outward actions. Are you holding fast the confession of your hope in Christ? Do you dwell on the confession of your hope and what it means for your life's attitudes and actions? Or are you holding fast to the world's vision for your career? The American dream for your family? 
And when I think of holding fast, one of the first things that comes to my mind, ever since I had a, a mentor do a devotional with me on this, is the story of Eleazar, one of David's mighty men. We read this in a passage in 2 Samuel. And next to him, among the, uh, among the three mighty men, was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahohi. I don't think you want to make fun of him for those names. <laughs> he was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary, and his hand clung to a sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the men returned after him only to strip the slain. Eleazar's hand held fast to his sword so that his hand literally froze to his sword. Are you clinging to the confession of your hope like Eleazar clung to his sword? Is your weapon against discouragement and depression The confession of your hope. We hold fast the confession of our hope because he who promised is faithful to deliver us. We have hope because we believe that God will do what he said he will. He set us free from bondage to sin and purified us and we cling to this truth as we await glorification with him one day. Now, there was this scene in the movie. It's a war movie. It's lots of blood and guts. It's We Were Soldiers. And there's an old, salty war veteran, played by Sam Elliott. And in the midst of battle, he tosses a weapon to the man who was inserted with the soldiers to take pictures of the events of this group of soldiers. The photographer looks at the weapon like he doesn't know what to do. And this salty war veteran says to him, here, you're going to need this. It's about to get sporty. And perhaps you don't feel like the war veteran, ready to do battle. Perhaps you feel more like the photographer out of place and overmatched in battle. And your weapon when the enemy comes at you is the confession of your hope. That you have a high priest who has sprinkled you clean from an evil conscience. You've got to hold this close to your heart. Hold fast to the confession of your hope. We overcome our enemy who isn't flesh and blood by the word of our testimony and by the blood of the Lamb, Revelation 12, 11. In light of what our high priest has done, we live confidently in him by holding fast the confession of our hope, for he is faithful. Part three of our calling, verse 24. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works. The preacher says, consider how to stir up one another to love. Consider. Contemplate. Think about. 
Be intentional. Have a plan for how you will stir up to love and good works. Now this is antithetical to our sinful nature that's self and inwardly focused. And common grace prevents saved and unsaved people alike from being bad as we could be in this sense. But thinking of others and how to love and to stir them up to love is not our natural or default setting until our high priest came, until Jesus came and he set us free from bondage to sin and to self-absorption. And now we can consider and we have the ability to stir one another up. And this is one of the things that's so countercultural about Christ. It isn't about you. And it's not even really about others either. It's all about Jesus. And when we love each other well in the church and we put others before ourselves, we will be known by our love for each other. That's how Jesus said that others would identify those who were his by their love for each other. So consider for a moment why you came to church. Did you come to church to receive something? To be filled up? To get something that makes you feel better? Or do you come to church or home group or youth group to stir up to love? To consider together how we can collectively love and collectively stir up to love? It's not necessarily an either-or distinction. In fact, I think this is where you should come to be fed, to draw near, to receive wisdom and encouragement. But if we think only of gathering as a means of getting something, then I think we've fallen prey to that self-absorption message and the culture's message. We've been trained by that instead of how God's word guides us in this. We need to be others-focused in our gathering. Namely, that, comes, that happens best when we focus on the Lord. But we all need each other. We need our attitudes to be focused on how we'll care for one another, love one another, and stir up love. Listen to William Barclay speak about this. It's easy to drift into a kind of selfish Christianity. But selfish Christianity is a contradiction in terms. There is no man who can live the Christian life and neglect the fellowship of the church. If any man feels that he can do so, let him remember that he comes to church not only to get, but to give. And if he thinks the church has faults, it is his duty to come in and help them mend. This isn't just about stirring up love and good works towards one another as Christians. We need to consider how to stir one another to love and good works towards those who don't know Christ as well. Do you think and live in an intentionally considerate way of how to love and stir up love for Christ among non believers? 
Maybe the first step is get to know somebody who doesn't know Christ. And if you do know non-Christians, well, do you consider and pray and labor over ways to proclaim the good news about Jesus to them? This is part of our call. This brings us to verse 25 and our last point. Our custom. Verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now our custom, the name I've given this point, it sounds like an optional, debatable, or man-made idea. Like we came up with this whole concept of meeting together. And apparently, many think that. A Barna Group study recently concluded that one in three regular church attenders have not been to church during the pandemic. Over a year. Now, I'm, I'm going to step onto thin ice here. If we forsake meeting together for fear of sickness, does it show that we value our body more than our soul? It might. And I'm not trying to say that when we stopped meeting for a few weeks last spring or any of the things that we've done have been wrong. Absolutely not. The pastors here have had total unity on how we've handled that. But this might be as good as anything to help drive home the point of the preacher in Hebrews that gathering as the bride of Christ is not optional. It's a command. And it's a command of the highest priority. You can disagree with me and how we've chosen to do it at Orchard. But if you disagree with this point, you're disagreeing with God's word. It's a command that's for our good, brothers and sisters. Our eternal soul is at stake, not just our physical body. We meet together as Christians on Sundays and home groups for Sunday nights at Orchard, a youth group, Sunday school, over coffee, lunch or dinner, for prayer meetings and Bible studies, for counseling and discipleship and mentoring, not because we came up with these things as great ideas, but because God's word commands it of us. We were made to flourish in this way. It's how we persevere. Your family worship at home with your family is wonderful. Please do it. It will bless your family for generations. But it does not replace the gathered assembly of the people of God. Gathering as a spiritual family is the primary, though not exclusive, means that we have to do the previous three imperatives. To draw near, to hold fast, and to stir one another up. We draw near together. We hold fast together. And we stir up together. We must meet together. And the preacher's concerned about apostasy if it isn't prioritized. Some are neglecting the gathering, and that's why he mentions this. 
So this is how we shall then live because of our great high priest. We meet together. (laughs) This is how we persevere and it's how we don't fall away. Now I'm sure many of you have had this experience as well. When I look around on Sunday with you all, and I see a brother or sister or family who I know is in pain, physically, emotionally, or spiritually, I know that their marriage might be struggling. I know that they're going through some terrible things. And when they're here, and when they're drawing near to Jesus, and they're holding fast the confession of their hope, They're stirring me up to love and to praise and adore our Savior. Now, this meeting together that we do each week is a foretaste as we see the day drawing near. Brothers and sisters, meeting together this morning, right now and every time we do this, is symbolic of our final gathering with Christ. We'll one day gather as Christ's bride at the marriage supper of the Lamb. I was thinking about who's going to make that supper. Prepared by him, right? Like the best chef in the world. All around his table, all of his people, the bride of Christ. And every week, it's a foretaste of that. When we're here together, drawing near and holding fast and stirring one another up. That's the day when the preacher's talking about. What a feast. Man, what a celebration. We'll have known and will know no other meal like it. Christ gave himself for that gathering and for this gathering. For all those who will call on his name for salvation. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're called to love his bride, the church. I read this quote a few weeks ago from Alastair Begg, and I think it's a great encouragement for us as we consider all this. Your church may seem small. As you drive to meet with the household of God on Sunday, you may pass hundreds of houses whose inhabitants give no thought to what they're doing except politely, or maybe not so politely, to deride it. It may feel little, but God's kingdom is unsmashable. And it has an embassy in your neighborhood, and it's called the church. Don't be discouraged as you meet. Don't be distraught over dwindling numbers or more and more hostile media. Instead, commit to it. Well, I had a couple people ask me this week if I'd lost weight. I know for most of you, that would be a compliment. But for the big, burly lumberjack in me, I was a little offended. (laughs) I took it personal, so I hit the gym. I was throwing weights around, started running gallantly on the treadmill. And I was thinking about how hard it is to work out. I mean, I love working out. I do it. I've done it a lot in my life, and, but it just never gets easier. I mean, really, like, every time I get in kind of good shape and my body's feeling good and I have some gains and people quit asking me if I've lost weight, 
Inevitably, I get busy, I get distracted. My body decays, and working out is just hard. And I was, as I was working out, and the, the, the miles weren't creeping up as fast as I wanted, I just thought, man, it'll never get better. Even if I get in shape, I just got to maintain it. And in some senses, it feels the same spiritually, doesn't it? And I know that Paul said outwardly we're wasting away, but inwardly we're being renewed day by day. But this side of heaven, inwardly, I won't ever be finished. I mean, I see evidence of God's faithfulness to me when I look in my past and I see how he's changed me. But I won't ever be perfected until I'm joined with Christ in heaven. And that's exactly why I need to draw near, to hold fast, and to consider how to stir others up to do the same faithfully. Now we live during an epoch where we live by faith in hope of one day seeing Christ face to face. One day our faith will be sight. But until then, we draw near and hold fast together. If you've ever done a group workout, you know that they're much more endurable than solo workouts. Having someone to encourage you and press you forward when you want to quit is vital to persevering. It's built on accountability that we really are living confidently in our king, our great high priest, instead of lesser idols. Now there's a great temptation for some here today, and ironically, for some of those not with us today, to be lackadaisical about our church gatherings on Sunday and getting here. I'm sure this isn't new. It's why the author to the Hebrews addressed it. If we're discouraged and despondent and mired in sin, the temptation is always to isolate ourselves so that nobody can see it. But that's exactly what Satan wants you to do. He wants you to come up with some new plan, some novel thing, some better idea. And it usually involves isolating and distancing yourself from brothers and sisters in Christ. He wants you to rest at home instead of coming to be with your brothers and sisters at church. He wants you to go skiing and thinks that it's the same thing as being at church with God's family. Don't do it. Come confidently to remember your high priest's work for you. Come draw near as we lift up Jesus' name in songs and sit under the proclamation of his word. Hold fast to your confession of hope in Christ. Find encouragement from others. Be an encourager. Build each other up. Today you might be the one encouraging. Tomorrow you might need it from me. So show up. Because we need you and you need us. So how should we then live? We live together, drawing near and holding fast and stirring up to love and good works. Please stand and I'll close in prayer. Our Father, 
who art in heaven. We approach your throne boldly because of our great high priest who is seated with you. His work in redeeming us is finished. And we thank you for your great love, for sending him to rescue us. Thank you that we have an audience with you. We worship you, Lord. We draw near to you in faith and we trust that you will deliver us one day finally to be in glory with you. We hold fast now the confession of our hope that Jesus is our Savior. And Lord, lead us by your Spirit as we seek to stir one another up to love and good works here at Orchard and in the lives of those who don't know you as their Lord and Savior. We bless your name for this time together and we think of the many Christians around the world that can't do this regularly or as publicly because if they do, they might die by the sword, by persecution. Be with them this morning, Lord. Encourage them. Make a way for them to be together. Protect and preserve them for evangelism and for your glory, God. We pray these things in the wonderful and precious name of our Lord Jesus, our great high priest. Amen.